Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're talking about a scanner darkly. I saw death rising from the earth and the ground itself in one blue field. Present for my friends at Thanksgiving. This is an American adult rotoscoped animated psychological science fiction thriller. Directed by Richard Linklater, who also directed School of Rock, one of my favorite films and a film we've That's right. already reviewed on this podcast. That's true. Uh, the cast includes uh, Jerry Tarkanian, Tony Stark, John Wick, Joy Spires, Woody Boyd, and literally Alex Jones. Literally Alex Jones. <laughs> uh, literally. This mo- I watched this movie on YouTube for free. Finally, a free movie on YouTube I actually want to watch. Joey, how did you watch it? Same. I uh, watched it multiple times on YouTube for free. What a convenience. YouTube, still the greatest platform to watch anything on. So, um, so true. Thumbs up there. Give, it, so give that true. that Thank thumbs you, up. Try to, give it, try to give it a, a dislike if you like, you know, even though this <laughs> don't matter. Okay. Uh, before we get into our discussion on a Scanner Darkly, we're going to recap the events with a synopsis that Joey wrote. Go ahead, Joey. In the near future of Anaheim, California, Bob Arctor is an undercover cop. While at the office or addressing the community, he wears a scramble suit, a full body suit of ever-shifting features. No one person is ever fully shown. Instead, combinations of several people are displayed on the suit, and a voice modulator also hides Arctor's identity. While wearing the suit, he is simply known as Fred. Arctor's undercover mission is to discover the source of a powerful new drug called Substance D. It is estimated that 20% of the country is already addicted to it, and the only thing fighting to restore people is a rehab corporation called New Path. Arctor lives in a rundown house with two other men, Jim Barris and Ernie Luckman. The house is also frequented by Charles Freck, a hardcore Substance D user, and Donna, who is dating Arctor and is the D supplier for the group. The little circle of friends engage in small adventures, often with Barris leading the charge. Barris is obsessive, annoying, and verbose, and often claims he has come up with some great idea, only to be proven wrong when he tries to execute it. One day, while at the police station, Archer, a.k.a. Fred, is speaking to his supervisor, Hank, who also wears a scramble suit, and Barris comes in. Barris claims Bob Arctor is a drug terrorist, and he has evidence. Hank doesn't trust him, but Arctor, hidden inside his scramble suit, suggests they hear Barris out. Arctor is also given a psychological evaluation, and they tell him to be careful and describe to him the symptoms of taking Substance D. Arctor, Barris, and Luckman attempt to go to San Diego, but the car breaks down. Upon evaluation, they determine it has been sabotaged. In the tow truck on the way back to the house, Barris tells Arctur that he set up a camera to secretly record anyone who enters the house. He also says he left the door unlocked and left a note on the door. When they arrive, everything is in order. 
Nearing the height of their drug-fueled paranoia, the three men decide they have been robbed, but the criminals just pretended not to rob the place. No, actually, the house has been filled with drugs, but as soon as they find them, the police will arrive and catch them red-handed. None of this is true. At work, Arthur is assigned to surveil his own house and has been told that he, Arthur, is the main subject of the investigation. Not only that, but his supervisor has determined that Fred is one of Arthur's friends and maybe even Arthur himself. Donna and Arthur hang out, but Donna refuses all of Arthur's advances, claiming that her coke addiction means she can't be intimate with anyone. Arthur leaves in a huff and finds some random woman to share the D with, if you know what I mean. After he wakes up, the sleeping woman appears to be Donna, but then transforms back into herself. Later, Fred is checking the surveillance tapes, and he sees the same illusion, first Donna, and then the other woman. He is called in for another psych evaluation. He admits he is doing D, and the doctors tell him his brain is splitting in two. He has major brain damage and is losing track of reality. Barris comes back to the police station with a recording of Arctur and Donna planning a terrorist attack. Hank tells Fred it's fake, and that was all they needed to get Barris. Hank reveals that he knows Fred is Arctur, but Fred seems confused, like he didn't know that himself. Hank calls Donna and asks her to pick up Arctur since he's having a psychotic break. We watch as Hank secretly removes his scramble suit to reveal he has been Donna all along. Donna takes Arctur to New Path, where he is heavily medicated and seems to have lost part of himself. Soon, he is transferred to a farm where he spends his time taking care of the crops there. At some point, he notices that when he bends down, he can see the blue flowers growing. He picks one and hides it in his sock, intending to show it to someone else in the future. The end. So there you have it, the events of A Scanner Darkly. We'll begin our conversation by going over our pros and cons. Joey, what did you like about this movie? It's uh, trippy, psychologically untethered, dark, and poignant. The acting and animation is outstanding. The whole thing is immersive, thoughtful, and has tons and tons of details to pick out. Um, And it's lots of fun to talk about. What about you? This movie features some great dialogue from a great cast. Rotoscope, I think, is a great choice for telling this particular story and also just a fun medium that i feel like we don't see enough of so i i liked all that stuff it this movie is mysterious and intriguing there are a lot of memorable sequences that could almost stand alone in just their entertainment quality and i think this movie has some interesting commentary on addiction and surveillance so those are our pros we move on to our cons joey what did you not like about a scanner darkly um it's Kind of hard to figure out what we know for sure. <laughs> this movie is not like vague is putting it mild, mildly. It's purposely confusing. <laughs> um, and I think that I think the rotoscoping looks kind of janky at times. You're right that like it it's perfect for this medium. And I think there's some creative animation choices that are made that really bring out the um, kind of uh, untetheredness of this uh, story. Um, but I think that. If you look at even people on YouTube like LT Tom and Jell Haver, rotoscoping has come a long way <laughs> since uh, <laughs> this movie came out. So it's very, um, it's sort of off-putting. Uh, it made me feel a little nauseous the first time I watched it. Um, and sometimes the story is really slow and it's hard to pick out what I'm supposed to care about. And it feels like nothing's happening. What about you? What did you not like about A Scanner Darkly? 
Yeah, I kind of echo what you just said. This there's a lot of this movie that seems kind of random and meaningless. And I understand that you could kind of wipe all that away and say, "Oh, but that's what being on drugs is like." Uh, but I I disagree. <laughs> you reject that hypothesis and uh, and substitute your own. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Um, I think that if you make a movie that's random and meaningless on purpose, it's still random and meaningless. So I am interested in talking about this movie with you because I do think it will clear up at least some of that uh, for me. But I also think there's probably a good bit of this movie that is, like I said, intentionally that way, which I don't like. Um, Also, this movie has a gratuitous amount of tetas in it uh and (laughs) while that's not like offensive to me at face value it gives me kind of sexist vibes because i just i've heard too many like we talked about uh in in our review of starship troopers it kind of makes me feel uneasy when people are like okay i'm the director and you're an actor so get naked you know it's uh not my favorite and it happens multiple times in this movie yeah you know like having him like focus so long on two different women that are topless right yes um and like standing over a hologram of him, it does feel pretty <laughs> pretty excessive um but you know to each their own <laughs> yeah i guess so um okay those are our pros and cons we'll move into our overall section and i want to start off by talking about rotoscope rotoscope is such a cool animation style and a perfect choice for this film mainly because it allows us to seamlessly blend the reality of this movie and and the movie magic in a way that keeps us immersed in what's happening instead of being distracted by potentially subpar special effects a great example of this happens right at the beginning of the movie when freck is hallucinating bugs coming out of his hair and his skin we can imagine that with him because the bugs look just as real as anything else just as it would if we were high and paranoid on drugs i i I thought that was a very memorable sequence and without telling me anything i was like this guy is very far along in the process of being addicted to hard drugs right well you well you see him covered in bugs right and you're like what am i supposed to take away from this and the bugs look crazy they're like different shapes and some of them are really big um and he puts them in a jar and then later he picks up the jar and he's like where are the bugs at (laughs) they're not in here um (laughs) which is hilarious but it's like um I think this movie is largely, you know, you have a lot of narrators. All of them are um, unreliable. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in here that I think uh, is from a certain perspective that we're not supposed to trust. Um, so uh, you're right. This is a great way to start. Gets you gets you on the right path to start questioning what you're actually seeing. Agreed. Rotoscope also worked really well with the scramble suits for the same reason. This impossible tech looks just as real as everything else, which is important because we have to stare at it a lot. And, you know, this kind of builds up as as things get weirder throughout the movie, we begin to question what we're being shown and Rotoscope helps to keep us guessing because this world doesn't look like our real life, despite being so realistic. It's right on theme with the way that substance D and drugs in general impact your perception of reality. I I mean, I think it's, it's really cool. I think Rotoscope is cool anyways, because you get to combine you know, a person with animation. I mean, this, this part of the reason I love this movie is because of the cast and you still get them fully in their essence through, even though this movie is fully animated. 
Yes, I completely agree. I it it really is an interesting medium because so much of it can just be painted over, right? And you can have really like crazy things happen that are only possible in animation, right? They only look good in animation. Um and yet you have this like very realistic looking sequences and you get all these like little interesting details like people tripping over things or um people bumping into things or 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 walking through real environments that is very um uh it, it like feels still grounded um even though you're constantly being bombarded by this idea that nothing you see is real and even like the way that the camera moves when they're like shifting perspectives right if uh, like the background doesn't feel like it's exactly in the background it feels like your characters are kind of pasted on top of them which is just another just adds to the surreal nature of the of the film it's extremely surreal especially yeah when things like a dynamic camera in a rotoscope world i think is especially jarring when they drive to the house it's like when they're leaving the the meal diner place and they go back to the house they park the car out in the street and they get out and the camera kind of follows them to the door and it's weird how everything kind of like is constantly do like changing shape and size as you move through the world it's almost like when you uh yeah. keep like when you don't check the uh, keep aspect ratio on an image when you're when you're making a meme <laughs> and then you try to like change its place and size and it's it's getting all wide and then skinny and and it just was really bizarre and i feel like that just completely encapsulates the feeling of being on some sort of reality distorting drug uh even when you're not necessarily supposed to be on drugs this whole world is so addicted to drugs that it seeps into uh, perception in general and and i just i think that really uh is is amazing when you're making a movie that is this focused on drugs uh, but but yeah. going back to how much i love that rotoscope allows you to have these actors and and really see all of them it's not just voice acting robert downey jr and woody harrelson were excellent as supporting characters in this film i loved robert downey jr's dialogue and i loved woody's mannerism and just and how they kind of played off of each other whenever they were on screen together i didn't care if their actions had anything to do with the larger narrative i just wanted to see how it would play out from the 50 dollar bike purchase like the way he walks in he's like i was on a street that i don't usually find myself on and like the the level of detail he's able to go into uh, to to recap the events of that transaction and then the like paranoia that that, that it spun into also making a homemade silencer where he like points the gun at freck he's like oh and then he points it at uh luckman and he's like do and then he points it at himself he's like Twa? like he's even <laughs> confused that he would point the gun at himself like little stuff like that it's like it made me want to rewatch these scenes just to capture all the little intricacies of the way that they played these characters and I really liked even Freck the way he was all jittery and stuff like that. I just feel like they nailed it with this cast. Um, and, and, and yeah, so I love that dealing with the car issues, the same thing, taking you down that, that, that path of paranoia, getting back to the house and thinking someone had been there and then fighting with a rock and a hammer. They were always goofy. <laughs> oh my gosh. So funny <laughs> and interesting. Yeah. And, and if for no other reason, I enjoyed this movie because I got to see specifically Robert Downey Jr. And Woody Harrelson um, play these characters. 
The choking scene was considerably less enjoyable, but memorable nonetheless. These guys, really oh my gosh, out of the terrifying, park. honestly. And um, yeah, I really like Barris. I think he's great. He's such an he's such a hateable character, and <laughs> he's like he's always talking. He's just like constantly coming up with new things to talk about and new things to say. He's got these wild theories about everything. Um, and when the first time you meet him, he's wearing like a, a like a illuminati shirt it's like a, yes. a, a pyramid with an eye on it and he's talking about like the new path he's talking about uh, substance d and he sounds insane but the truth <laughs> is that at least at some points he's right he's actually right about some things he's right to suspect bob archer he's right of, about like new paths like uh uh trajectory um he's even sort of right about the car even though it's it feels pretty uh it feels like it's pointing to that he's the one who sabotaged the car since he has the tools necessary to fix it. He's like, ah, back at the house. I have the, I have the tools to fix this problem. Um, he's, he's so unhinged in the fact that nobody trusts him, right? But he's still hanging around. Like, Arthur and Donna, by the end, are like, what is his deal? Why is he here? What is he doing? And then, er, like, when Ernie's choking and he wakes up and he's like, what were you doing while I was I was being escorted, uh, escorted to the, the light by my ancestors um <laughs> hilarious yeah so i i really liked them i thought they brought a lot of color to the story and they offer like an interesting distraction in like uh, kind of fill out the world um to like kind of make it even more confusing about what this movie is about uh because at a certain point it stops being like a psychological thriller it starts being like a drug hangout movie like a dude yes. my car in a way <laughs> Yeah, and honestly, I would love to have seen that movie, but you would have to replace Keanu Reeves with somebody else who maybe is a little bit less serious because Keanu Reeves really carries that emotional weight of this film on his back. And and, it, and really, I loved the way that we were able to experience the progression of Bob Arctor as he becomes more affected by Substance D. He's so sharp and, and like seemingly about his business at the beginning, and then he becomes a shell of himself by the end. Uh, he stops being able to tell people apart. He forgets who he is, which is also interesting because already it's hard for us to keep track of his identity from the beginning. We're told he's Bob Arctor and Fred from from the start, so we're already kind of um, you know in, in kind of tenuous uh, identity uh, situations here. And then we also find out later yeah. that he's Bruce. Like uh, so, so that was an it, you know it it really got m just muddier and muddier. And I felt like uh, Keanu Reeves did a great job. Of, of performing that you know g even getting to the point where he forgets that his house used to actually have a family in it and he's sitting there lamenting the fact that his house is so trashed and how it could be used for a family um you know by the end of the movie he's basically brainless uh but still holding on to that one small spark of who he once was and you know just another situation where they they put keanu reeves in you know the, that lead role and he delivers yeah he's i mean he really is a great self-insert for um any story right he kind of he acts as our guide through this and as the movie becomes more and more confusing like and our our main character becomes more and more confused and it's, i don't know there's something about him or the way he acts that really um you're able to put yourself in his shoes really easily um and yeah i, I really liked all of the uh like the monologues that were voiced over um, I thought those were, I think those are taken directly from the book. At least that's how they seem. Um, and I feel like his delivery is amazing because uh, like to match up with his acting. And 
uh, I mean, maybe I've just watched a lot of Keanu Reeves movies, but while he's in the scramble suit, he acts like I expect yes. Keanu Reeves to act. Like his, yes. like the way he stands, the way he moves, right? Even though you can't hear his voice or really see his face, you can kind of, once you know he's in there, it's obvious that it's him. Yes. Um, and I'd be curious to know if you, if you watched this, some scenes over and over again, if you could, and you didn't know it was him in the scramble suit, if you, if you could tell it, would, like if you could guess it, because um, it is really distinct. And even when, when I own a writer too, I, I felt like there were certain things she said and certain things she did that made me think, like oh wow i can actually see her through the suit um which is which is really really interesting and it just like tells you how powerful of like a force he is as like a as a charismatic charismatic uh, actor um uh, i don't know i i was impressed with that i agree especially with what you said about kind of his monologues because there's a there's a lot of those like whoa this is deep kind of moments because keanu reeves is really good at kind of lingering on every part of the sentence and, and kind of really dragging it out in a way that is is uh enticing and i think we've got an example of that right here death is swallowed up in victory behold i tell you the sacred secret now we shall not all sleep in death yes a fantastic delivery there and a good segue into uh, you know, one of the main topics of this movie, which is addiction. And I, I feel like what he's kind of saying here, at least what I got out of it, is that not everybody uh, who's dead is actually like dead. Like all of these people who are becoming right. addicted to uh, substance D are basically zombies at this point. Their brains don't work enough and they have no agency or even an ability to experience life in a way that's recognizable to us because they, they lack the ability to recognize things or even understand who they are. Uh, and I think that this movie is a effective kind of scared straight story about drug use. I mean, it's obviously kind of turned up to 11, but there's a lot in here that is pretty applicable to, to anything uh, addictive. Uh, Fred at the beginning of the movie is talking to all those people at the whatever pine lodge or the bear whatever. lodge bear yeah, lodge. not really sure what that's supposed to be adult men's is that like meeting a, is group like a, like a cultural like a country club or something i don't know it, it looked like it looked like boy scouts but like for yes. adults <laughs> yes that's, that's what it seems like adults of uh, men in suits yeah and maybe you'd have to be like the equivalent of an adult boy scout to not like fall prey to uh such an addictive drug but fred says that the d in uh substance d stands for dumbness despair and desertion and finally it's death slow death from the head down and that's very ominous in the beginning but we end up seeing that kind of play out throughout the movie and it, it's it's entirely true uh freck also displays some of the worst parts of addiction just if, like we were talking about from the beginning of this movie he has hallucinations he his imagination runs wild it, you know he, he can't avoid thinking of these things just in the middle of his day uh his he just has general paranoia as well that makes it so that uh, you know a couple guys joking around with a hammer and a rock becomes too much for him to handle and he has to remove himself from the situation substance d is clearly on another level from other addictive substances in this movie uh, and it's i think that that's typified by the fact that like our characters seem to think that you can do cocaine weed and alcohol and cigarettes and still be considered a functional person but once you're on the d it's over i, I found it particularly interesting that uh, winona Ryder's character 
Donna slash Hank slash whatever else her name was at the end. Um, she offers a cigarette to Fred slash Keanu Reeves after Fred realizes that he's like completely losing it. And she does cocaine. She does everything, but she's like holding it together because she's not doing this like top tier addictive, right. destructive drug. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think that that's supposed to encourage anybody. It's like, well, the, the drugs we have in real life are actually fine. Um, but I think it's supposed to kind of build up substance D as this kind of uber S tier destructive, addictive drug. <laughs> uh, you know, Barris says there are no weekend warriors on the D. You're either on it or you haven't tried it. Which, when he said that, I was like, hmm, is he, like, a straight edge? And obviously not. Um, but I think all that to say, this movie is saying that addictive drugs are terrible and you shouldn't do them. And anyone who plays a part in getting people addicted are evil as well. Um, which I, I, think that's, uh, I think that's kind of in there, too. Uh, kind of with the way that they portray the new path. Yeah, well, you know opium right uh, the opioid addiction or opioid epidemic in this country is still ongoing right the people that are behind it largely will never see consequences for it it's a um you know it, it has real world analogies and even though this movie is from 2006 it's only it's only more real today and um uh, it certainly feels like a slice of american life in a way right and um i think the fact that you know, 20% of the country is on it or whatever is uh, just kind of uh, a macro example of the destruction that is happening to our characters, specifically Bob Archer, right? Uh, his whole world is crumbling. Um, and wh so why not the whole world crumble with him, right? Um, yeah, I, I think that you're right. It's just a, it's, it doesn't really matter what it is or what it's supposed to be analogous to. I think addiction is really the the devil here, and uh, the, that's the thing about addiction is that um, for some people at least it's impossible to beat. And if you, um, uh, it might as well be you know everyone and you know, or it might as well be twenty percent of the population that that is, is succumbing to this uh, because. Uh, for you, it's as deadly as something like as some fictional drug from a science fiction story, right? And when you have this terrible force that's sweeping through society, what's to stop you from saying, "Let's take drastic measures to stop it"? And uh, yes, in this exactly. case, we have our surveillance state. We have the police who are very involved with. Uh, surveilling the the general population, everybody except the new path. Um, and I, I wanted to play this quote to uh, kind of get us started on on scanners. What does a scanner see? Into the head, down into the heart. Does it see into me, into us, clearly or darkly? I hope it sees clearly because I can't any longer see into myself. I see only Mark. I hope for everyone's sake the scanners do better. Because if the scanner sees only darkly the way I do, then I'm cursed and cursed again and will only wind up dead this way, knowing very little and getting that little fragment wrong. Yeah, it's a very uh, poetic line uh, or, or series of lines. To me, it, it's a little bit 
difficult to understand what we're trying to pull out of this. So do you, do you have, I mean, I obviously I feel like he's talking about the cameras that he uses at work. Um, but I, I feel like he's trying to draw some sort of profound meaning from the surveillance. Uh, but I just came, came away a little bit confused. I, the first time I watched it, I had no idea what was going on. And at first I balked when he says, does a scanner see into your head or something? I didn't really understand what he was talking about, but I, the more I listen to this, the more I really love this line. I think it's amazing because um, what he's asking is, is it possible to know someone simply by watching them, right? If he has a, um, he has all these things, he can see every instance of his life that he lives in this house, right? Can you tell what kind of person you are simply by watching them? Or do you have to see inside your, they have to be inside your head or does it have to be even deeper? Like what, what, what is it missing? Um, it's an inhuman thing is what he says before this. It, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not like Donna. It's a, which is ironic because Donna is the one per- <laughs> perpetuating the surveillance. But um, he, um, he was wondering if it's possible that some sort of meaning will come from this if, uh, uh, if, if this surveillance is there, right? And he asks, does it see clearly or does it see darkly? Normally, I wouldn't think of darkly and clearly as being uh, antonyms, but I think it works in this case. I really like it when he says... Um, I'm cursed and then cursed again because uh, the reason he feels that way is because he feels like he has some grasp of reality, right? He knows some things, but it's possible that um, he doesn't, right? That he doesn't know anything. And it's also possible that all of this surveillance will not reveal anything. It will not see clearly. It will see darkly. It will only uh, create another false reality for him to uh, eventually give up on uh, because uh, the, the only thing waiting for him in this life would be death. There would be there would be no revelation about what life is for or what life is about. Um, it would simply be a striving toward nothing because he not only can he not see the full picture from his own perspective, but even watching himself in the third person, he can't figure out what his life is supposed to be. Wow, that is incredible. So this I is why it. I like having <laughs> these really, conversations. Really cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you know, uh, probably kind of tangential to that this the scanners their, their existence at all i think is a commentary on the insanity of the war on drugs uh you know at the beginning we're back at the boy scout lodge here the adult boy scouts fred asks everyone at that meeting to report suspicious activity and individuals and i, I think that's like important to try to point the the drugs or the the problem with drugs at individual people, individual perpetrators, right? Uh, he says, "Yes." He's saying that everyone. Uh, he says, "If there's no demand in our society, there'd be no market for these leeches to exploit." A little bit of uh, victim blaming here, saying it's like, well, if people didn't want to buy the drugs, then we wouldn't have a drug problem, right? Uh, basically, just saying that everybody needs to police everyone else to stop drugs from getting into their communities. Asking people to narc on each other, uh, it, you know, is already pushing the line for me. But beyond that, we get to see how the police surveil the community, and it's absurdly invasive. Literally watching everyone with scanners, and it gets even more absurd when <laughs> we realize the police are surveilling themselves undercover, participating in the crimes. Like Donna is the like is the police officer 
who's providing the drugs to this group. Like, would any of them be on drugs if Donna wasn't undercover? You know, it's it's like, well, this is completely circular at this point. The war on drugs is such a lost cause that the police themselves take casualties in the form of drug-addicted cops just to get up the chain of command of the drug empire to try to figure out where it's coming from. It seems like this conflict has spun completely out of control to the point where now it's just a wasteland. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you've, I think you've kind of nailed it here. I mean, it's it's such a it's such a interesting problem you know i think that the um the fact that it's un- they're unable to pinpoint anything and so they simply are looking for anything to do um and you know this is not necessarily a terrible st- strategy to try to target individuals right in theory that would get you somewhere but it certainly wouldn't solve your problem it would be it's you're only tr- treating the symptoms you're not really and even then you're not really treating the symptoms you're just uh removing them from the from the situation right. um which is like sort of using a you know leeches or a blunt instrument to solve your medical problem it's not really um getting you anywhere uh but it might work it, it, it could possibly work and if you're so desperate it's possible this would be the um the only solution at your um at your fingertips um yeah, I, I I don't really know what to take from this mass surveillance thing, obviously. Uh, I think today it's worse than it was in 2006. I think smartphones certainly play a big role in that. Um, Facebook, right, came out in 2005, but it wasn't really popular until maybe 2008, 2009. Um, and that is a huge surveillance tool used by the government to watch people. Uh, so it's it's certainly worse than it's ever been. Uh, and yet, you know, we still, we're still doing okay for the most part. There's still like a, uh, there's still a semblance of freedom and there's still a semblance of autonomy in our society. Uh, but maybe that's just an illusion. Uh, the, the paranoia in this movie certainly allows you to go down any rabbit hole that it, you can think of, uh, because it, all the people in this movie are sort of, um, what's the word validated, uh, by the, by that paranoia. Right. And um, there certainly are good things to be paranoid about. Like, for instance, who is, uh, you know, perpetuating the the manufacture of this substance D, which gets us to the new path. And I want to play this quote to kind of kickstart that part of the conversation. What do you think about the new path? Well, it doesn't matter what I think. I kind of have to tip my hat to any entity that could bring so much uh, integrity to evil. I mean, imagine it's a seemingly voluntary privatized gulag just managed to eliminate the meddling middlemen of public accountability and free will and wrapped up in a little bow and give it to the public like a gift. I mean, come on, this is... It's awe-inspiring stuff. I, I like, you don't, you can't, you can't trust Barris in this moment. He's set up to be untrustworthy, especially, um, uh, even though he seems to be helping Freck, um, he's, it's, he's wearing the Illuminati shirt. He's the way he's talking makes him sound like a crackpot, but he's exactly right in this moment, which yes. is funny. So funny because even though I, as the movie goes on, I like Barris less and less. He's still right about this one thing. <laughs> he's spot on. And he's all, the way he says this. And, and this is just Robert Downey Jr. being an amazing actor. This is Jeff Goldblum like level uh, articulation. The way he's able to kind of <laughs> change his cadence around and then speak really low and then speak higher and then <laughs> kind of add the little the motion. And it's I was blown away. And this is a situation where 
I don't know if you could make an animated character be Robert Downey Jr. in this moment when you need the Robert Downey Jr. mannerisms and motion. That part where he does, does like the third eye out of the middle of his head. First of all, I'm <laughs> going to be stealing that motion for like next time I try to do some Illumina, like reference the Illuminati. But it just <laughs> was great. And I was like, this is why we have Robert Downey Jr. in a movie because he's interesting to look at while he says interesting stuff. Uh, so I just, I love that line. I had to play it in this episode. Uh, but more to the point, New Path. Why does New Path exist? What interests do they have in getting people addicted just to take care of them? I think it's probably to make money. And then, like, take the addicted victims who become brainless zombies and then use them as slaves to produce more drugs. So just, like, you know, the profit motive on steroids, right? More, more money at any, uh, like, cost or, to, or, like, at any moral standpoint. Um, I, I think that's the, like, coming out of my own society, I feel like that's why they would do this or how this would be possible, but I don't feel like they really harp too much on that. Um, New Path's motivations seem kind of clouded to me. Uh, they kind of just exist to exist, uh, but it's clear that they're trying a, very hard to maintain their existence they somehow are able to influence the government to allow them not to be scanned which also makes them the most obvious ones to be behind <laughs> this stuff right um and i assume that they achieve that through money yeah well it doesn't matter right i i don't think it matters if they appear suspicious because uh at this point everything's crumbling so far that and they have so much control that you know, it, it's it's basically just a war of attrition. They're, eventually, they're just going to win um, because there, there's not enough resources left for anyone to fight them, really. Um, you know, Bruce or or Bob or Fred seems to be <laughs> the last hope of the uh, of any sort of like integrity, <laughs> like, you know, integrity, uh, integrity uh, institution, institution of integrity. Um yeah, I I think that it's purposeful that they seem so vague and, and kind of out there, right? Because that's not really what the movie's about. The movie's about individuals and their own problems. And New Path is simply the perpetrator of this evil. But there's nothing you as a person can do about it. Just like you, there's nothing really you can do about the opioid epidemic on your own. You you either suffer through it or watch someone else suffer th suffer through it, right? It's not really a um, there's nothing individuals can can take control of. Uh, so it it's just a uh, We've we've lost that war essentially, and then they 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 have won. Um, yeah, they're the new masters of the world, right? And it's interesting that they would be such a uh, seemingly like they're they're kind of um, positioning themselves to be viewed as a force for good. They're the only ones who care about the substance D epidemic. They're the only ones right, trying right. to take care of people. Um, they don't come out looking evil or waving around like a flaming sword. It's like, we're going to destroy society. Instead, it's the opposite. They're out there with arms wide open and trying to uh, be, be seen as the good guys. It's just extra insidious. Right, which is helpful. And also, uh, yes, and, and also true to real life, right? I mean, lo there's lots of uh, corporations that will signal to people using certain language and everything to um and marketing campaigns to distract from whatever evil that they're doing um so it's it, this is just typical uh, honestly typical corporation behavior uh, they can do two things at once they can be one thing and or pretend to be one thing and be doing something else um in the background so it's uh, uh i don't know i think it's they're well they're you know as an evil corporation 
they are well represented in this movie. Um, but I never really saw them as something that uh, our characters had any capability to solve. I felt like they right. were um, they were too big for that. Essentially, the story was was too focused on just our characters. Well, even the plot that's kind of take the real plot that's happening throughout this, which is all just to get Bob Arthur or Bruce so addicted to the substance D that he can yeah. enter into the new path. Seems like a pipe dream that that would actually turn into anything. Seems like they're pretty much screwed. And even Donna is kind of giving up. But yeah, it doesn't seem like they, they have much hope. But it's but the fact that he picks up the flower, right? I mean, that's a, that's a sign of, of some progress, perhaps. Maybe there's hope, um, which is it's kind of cool. A neat moment. A scanner um, darkly, yeah, too. Uh, like, he actually, like, <laughs> does yeah, it. Yeah, he, he, like, infiltrates. Right. He, like, do, does so much substance D that he can, like, bend reality. Um, and then he's, like, fighting um on the sub like on the highway with a bunch of ghosts and vampires right and um he's stopping bullets with his hands yes uh, then he has to then he talks to the art he talks to the ceo of Dupath, who has like um uh, television monitors all around his office and he's like this is what you're gonna do i know because i control you uh uh bruce or whatever your name is uh you can you this is this is the third time you've changed your identity but we know who you are and, and how and uh <laughs> and uh, we know how you're going to act. I think yeah. you're uh, so, on to something. Sounds like that wouldn't here. go off the rails. <laughs> I think, well, I, I think we need uh, to get Lawrence Fishburne to play the role of Donna um, to kind of be that yeah, mentor yeah, there you go. for him. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, the, fir- <laughs> the first time I watched this movie, I felt like I, I really didn't get it. I felt really confused. I felt like I was I'd gone through a tumble dry. Um, this was pretty consistent with how I felt after reading another Philip K. Uh, Dick book, which is Ubik. Um, it's the only other one I've read, uh, and I didn't really like it. But uh, in in that book, I felt like I never got a handle on the reality within the story. Everything was so ephemeral, so untethered, and just clearly wrong that when the whole thing is explained at the end, I was so thrashed and whipped about that it was hard to even accept that ending. It didn't feel like enough. It felt like any explanation would be inadequate. And I felt really similar to that after finishing A Scandler Darkly. And that sort of cued me in that I was probably missing something big. So I decided I needed to watch it again. Um, And the second time, I was really struck by the beauty in the dialogue. I saw patterns I didn't before, like how the psychologist and Donna hint about Bob's future, subtly encouraging encouraging him to go to New Paths Farms and find a small blue flower there. Um, Very interesting, like really interesting little tidbit to to pick up on. Um, And then... I think the like the the theme of duality, right? The split of the right and left hemisphere, but also the split between what's real and what's not, is very interesting to explore. The uh, the observations by our characters are so profound in unexpected ways. To me, it feels like nothing means anything, but also everything means something. The crumbled, drug addicted, addled world of a scanner darkly is both too terrifying to consider and too real to ignore. Paranoia is a major theme, like Aaron says in Primer. See, man, I'm not like that. I'm not. I'm not into the whole destiny. There's only one right way. Hey, I'm not either. Okay, but what's worse, you know, thinking you're being paranoid or knowing you should be. The small group fears the possibility that they're being watched, that the authorities are right around the corner, which is true, but also a common delusion fueled by <laughs> recreational drugs. Um, Barris's 
some sort of mechanical genius with gadgets all over the house and the ability to create elaborate fake recordings, but also he doesn't know how to count the gears on a bike and he thinks he can create a silencer out of trash. Um, <laughs> the police department is fighting the war on drugs, but also fuels the war's perpetrator by investigating and arresting drug users and sending them to New Path. The police are the military arm of this corporation, whether they're willing or not, um, and they're just as helpless to the whims of New Path as any citizen who becomes addicted to Substance D. Bob Arter both exists and doesn't exist. He is the construct of the police, a, a secret identity for the purposes of infiltration. But he lives in a house. He has connections, a relationship, and a job. He's a human being with a life. But he's also an undercover agent investigating himself. If Bob Arter wasn't the one investigating Bob Arter, who is the person investigating Bob Arter? What does that person's life look like? Who are his friends? As time goes on, it becomes harder and harder to figure out who Bob is. Is he the story? Is he the story he tells himself, or is he someone else? I, I really like falling down this rabbit hole, but unfortunately, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to remember when I wake up. It's clear <laughs> that Bob is sick and the victim, the victim of a conspiracy. As a fable about addiction, this story is very powerful. It's clear um, powerful players conspired to ruin his life for their own gain. But is this happening to me? What should I be worried about? I know that I'm being manipulated, right? But we all are. Sometimes I even manipulate myself. I set things in motion knowing how I will act <laughs> in the future. Sometimes I curse myself for that, but I do my best to see my future self as someone worthy of love and respect and attempt to always pay forward my successes because my past self had my best interests at heart. I try to examine my biases and I try to express myself as only myself. I'm not an authority. I just have a podcast. But <laughs> I know that there are vast, invisible forces at play. Corporations, governments, my job, my neighborhood, advertising, media. It cannot be trusted at face value. Yet, I cannot live my life trusting nothing. You trust every day. You make assumptions about people's intentions every day. I don't know. I don't think it's worthwhile to always second guess. Sometimes it's just easier to get played and suck up the loss instead of wasting your time fighting. It's clear that Scanner Darkly, the, the, the situation has just gone too far. It's too late for anyone to stop it. The world is crumbling and people are becoming slaves. Slaves to what, though? These line, I think this line is, is really spooky. Living and unliving things are exchanging properties. The drive of unliving things is stronger than the drive of living things. The living should never be used to serve the purposes of the dead. But the dead should, if possible, uh, serve the purposes of the living. This is after uh, Archer gets admitted to New Path. He's in the cafeteria with the other patients and they all sort of recite these lines um what is an unliving thing a corporation or something else is it even new path that's doing this or has the plant that makes substance D taken control of the earth domesticating humans and becoming the earth's dominating life form all of our progress and infrastructure was has been stolen from us and now serves a new master the same argument can be made of wheat or corn these <laughs> plants thrive in a human-centered world we dedicate large amounts of resources to their well-being and even seek to make them into super plants capable of surviving against almost any adversary uh i think that um this is something that yuval noah harari who i will mention later uh talks about in um uh, uh sapiens he talks about how plants have in some ways domesticated humans and uh, allowed us to uh, you know their perpetuation across the earth they were one of the most successful species on earth um and you know they don't have a brain or anything but they they 
have found a symbiotic relationship with human humanity to the point where we will suffer at their ex <laughs> to make them happy, um, which is <laughs> seems backwards, but that's just how our world is built. Um, and it's not hard for me to believe that substance D, the plant, right, or is um, in some way doing the same thing. And New Path is just a a willing pawn in this new like new regime. Um, simply the uh, the human arm of this plant that's been uh you know puppeted by like roots uh from the ground i don't know wow it's, uh, that that is that, awesome it doesn't i love that theory i don't know like whether that's there's any evidence for that or not but it certainly feels as if like when when keanu reeves says uh um death is coming from the ground right it feels as if the, this is supposed to be some sort of a uh, parasite uh that is uh, eating the earth and its inhabitants um and perhaps it's uh there's some sort of intelligence behind it and maybe even some anyway. sort of like brainwashing that even comes through via substance D. Maybe something that like the plant is able to express through like the human consciousness that it's kind of destroying or maybe even just rebuilding in a, in a different way. Uh, I think it's interesting that Freck says that specifically where he says the dead should serve the living if they can. Uh, and that other person who said that the drive of unliving things is greater than the drive of living things, where it's like a corporation would be unliving, right? Because it doesn't live. Yes. It's a corporation. It's not like a, a living thing. I think unliving is distinct from dead, which were understanding that people who are so far gone on substance D are basically zombies. They're the living dead, um, the, the, the undead really. Um, so it's almost like the drive for like of unliving things, corp this corporation is more than for living things, normal humans who aren't on substance D and the living, the undead should be willing to do whatever they're told. That's the new like experience for them. Um, and, and then they do that via being, you know, the workers on these farms that grow the drugs. I know it's interesting. Uh, I, I it can also be interpreted as the dead are still your allies, even though they're dead, right? It's toward the living as in the people that aren't addicted to it. Right. And you see Bruce consider that and then, uh, you know, act in, on the interest of his former friends or his colleagues or, or whatever. Right. Um, so it, he is, it's pretty clear that they're signaling he is dead or as good as dead in this moment. Um, but perhaps he still has a role to play um, in the downfall of the unliving things. Um, and I, I don't know. It's, it's very, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very heady. It's very strange to think about. And um, it's also unclear about where, how far the conspiracy goes because uh, other characters in the story seem, uh, are always hinting that, um, um, uh, Arthur should be giving someone flowers or should be looking at like beautiful blue flowers, um, which makes it feel like substance D has infiltrated reality. But, the, but that's not really true. The fact is that uh, this is all part of the elaborate sting operation they're doing to like incept him into uh, remembering <laughs> to get some flowers from the, <laughs> from when he gets put on a farm by himself. I, I don't know. It's a, uh, um, it's hard to know like what to pull away from this. And it's hard to know like, what I'm even supposed to believe or what I'm supposed to, to know or, or anything. Uh, but it is fun to think about. And I, I appreciate it for that. 
You're um yeah, and I agree that uh, with what you just said is that it is fun to think about. This movie demands a rewatch, at least one. I, I spent all week yeah. returning to my favorite scenes and picking up on on things. So I was like, whoa! I like now this means something to me. Oh, that was f- <laughs> like Fred, which are n- not Fred, but th- that was Hank, which now I know is Donna. So it's like let me watch this scene now, knowing that it's Donna. You know, it, it, this this yeah. movie really does have a lot of replayability because of that, like added. Uh, context when you return to a scene that didn't give you the proper prefix before you got there. Well, I think I've had a lot of my questions answered during this uh, like discussion, but I have a few that I just want to you know rapid fire go through to see if we can uh, squeeze a little bit more understanding out of this uh, ambiguous film. A lightning round? A lightning round? Yes, I guess. Well, hopefully it'll be that fast. Uh, <laughs> my first question, I think, is is really important that we cover this. Bob Arctor, or whoever he was when his, he saw a family, hit his head and then suddenly decided to destroy his family and become a drug addict or maybe become a cop. Uh, what conclusions are we supposed to draw from this? Why is that his origin story? I have no idea if this is even real. You know, like, so Bob Arctor, right, has an entire elaborate story right he has friends he has property he has a job right (laughs) it's not hard for me to believe that bob arctor the character that is being played by fred the undercover like um, agent uh part of his backstory is that he used to have a family and then he abandoned them to because he became addicted to drugs you know for whatever reason um so but then he's he he keeps saying i i had two little girls he says this twice he said he says this in the meeting with the Boy Scouts, and he also says this at the end when he's having his psychotic break. Um, he's like, I have, I have two little girls. And, you know, Hank's like, I don't think that's true, which it, it can be interpreted in two ways. Either that's never been true or <laughs> it was true. And now because of his uh, obsession and his drug addiction, um, he has lost them forever, right? They, they have uh, his mom, their mom, or has taken them away or whatever, right? Um, So I don't even know if I'm not even comfortable saying that this is even really what happened to him, you know, Um, and uh, I I, I don't know. I I think there is something like there is evidence of people having head trauma and then their personality changing, which is what I was thinking of when I was watching this scene. Um, But it's really, really sad to to imagine that. Yes. Um, And I, uh, (laughs) I, I just don't like that. I just don't like thinking that that kind of thing. So. All right. Good enough for me. Uh, we'll keep it moving. Okay. Why do the cops want to arrest Barris? Is he a bad? Is he actually a bad guy? They say he's mixed up with some bad people, but that's also what they said about Bob. So I, I feel like I can only trust that as far as I trusted their evaluation of Bob's, uh, you know, involvement with crime. So why do they want to arrest Barris? I have no idea. I, 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 this is another thing that I'm just like completely mystified by. Like, it seems like I'm just taking him at the word that Barris is perhaps a bad guy, like that he's got some sort of problem or he's got some sort of connection. He certainly seems shady. He certainly seems like, like off kilter, like definitely wrong in some way. Um, but it's hard to know how much that is just his own like his own strangeness and how much of that is sinister malice right right um but there's some reason that bob archer was assigned to this house specifically this group of people you know and and and, um i have to believe that it was more than just they wanted to get him addicted to drugs right it i think why wouldn't you kill two birds with one stone why wouldn't you send an undercover agent to investigate a hot 
bed area while also like messing with his brain and, and like and killing him right um i feel like you if you're gonna make the argument that you need to surveil this place uh you should do it at a not just some random house but at a house that you feel is some sort of target and of the characters involved bear certainly seems the most sinister but it's hard to know um if there's anything there he's got all that equipment right and then he it's it's possible that he messes with archer's car it's possible he certainly suspects him so he's he's got that paranoid streak he certainly seems to know some things but it's um i i don't know what it is about him that uh that specifically triggers this this investigation perhaps they found something on the surveillance tape perhaps the fact that he is uh dedicated enough to try to turn somebody else in um shows some sort of initiative that is like it's like a pre-crime type thing i don't i don't know I, it's um he's just a bad guy essentially <laughs> Right, or or maybe he's not, and he's just a casualty of this kind of roundabout way of do, of trying to stop the new path, where they're like, well, yeah, it's we want to it's true. make, like, yeah, have this be airtight, so we will be like, yeah, this investigation was always about Barris, like, the fact that this guy became addicted and ended up at new path, it was just a casualty of our legitimate mm. police business that was going on here that checks out since this guy's going to prison, even if that guy doesn't deserve to go to prison. What was his charge? Making up fake evidence because his roommate was acting shady. His roommate was acting shady. <laughs> like, I guess it's one thing to like make fake evidence, right? That's bad on its own. But it's like you kind of uh, started those dominoes moving by having like literally having his roommate start acting suspicious. So it's um, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. It's like possible it he be. is like he's not really the target. He was just a stated target so that they could do this undercover like po- poisoning of uh, Bob Archer. Wow. Okay. Because I, I've, well, I've read other people. It's like in the villain of the movie, Barris. And I'm like, the villain? If anything, he was my hero for being such an entertaining character. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I guess that's where I land on that one. Um, I do think that a lot of the questions that I wrote before this conversation can now be chalked up to some like degree of kind of ambiguity where it's more interesting just to, uh, you know, to have your own take on it than to come to a, actual decision on it but i'll throw one more your way during sex uh you know we we get this kind of transformation halfway through from whatever that woman's name is to donna but then we see that again in the tape so do do you have any sort of meaning do you does anything come away with you when you see him like watch the tape back and he's able to like in real time see that transformation is it possible that it really was donna I, i like what do you get out of that? Um, scanner sees darkly. It doesn't see clearly. It, it is a reflection of his own psychosis. He cannot, he cannot um, perceive reality anymore. He's completely lost the plot. Um, one of my favorite little details in here, and this is, I don't know how re- like real this is, but this is my theory anyway. Um, when he's doing the, when he goes back to see the psychologist and he has that helmet on that covers up his eyes so you can't see, he the two psychologists in the room are different than they were when he was in there before but what as soon as he takes the thing off and then starts rubbing his eyes and turns around to look at them they transform into the psychologists that were there before which makes me think that he simply didn't recognize their voices and imagine that they were somebody else 
And so those people in the room really were the same people the whole time. They didn't transform, but we only see things through Bob Archer's perspective. So when he imagines that there are other people, they are other people until he's conf- he can confirm that it's not true. This wow. thing doesn't give him any, any, any new evidence. All it does is tell him what he already knows. Um, yeah, I, 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 that's 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 my interpretation. Is that uh, he's actually so crazy that he can't even watch security <laughs> tapes and see the reality. <laughs> when that he is goes amazing. back and watches uh, when when he was high on D, he sees two uh, a bug version of Barris and, and Luckman <laughs> on the couch. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, I'm glad I asked that one. That was really insightful. I, I think that's exactly what that means. Um, oh man, that that is amazing. Okay, that's it. I'll, I'll stop my questions there. Uh, I think that's fantastic, <laughs> and we'll move forward into our cool Easter eggs. Uh, Joey, what do you got? There's a bunch of little details in the background. Um, the one that I caught myself was a looks like a sheet that's like with marker or paint on it that's hanging up in the kitchen that says "Time to thaw Walt out." Which is definitely a reference to Walt Disney's head being frozen, like that uh, that old uh, conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is hilarious. I don't know why exactly they care so much about Walt Disney, uh, but um, it is funny to think that like this is something that they care enough about to write it on the sign and permanently affix in their kitchen. Um, yeah. Um, there's a, okay. So there's this famous. A parable, I guess you could say, and this is um, related to the same scene I was just mentioning. They um, so they put this blindfold or device, something that covers up Archer's eyes, and they give him a series of tests. Uh, and one of them, they hand him two um, elephant like figurines, like little uh, plastic elephants, and mm-hmm. ask him to tell them what it is. And there's this famous parable that this made me think of. A group. Uh, a gloop I'm really starting off strong here <laughs> a, a group of blind men heard that a strange animal called an elephant had been brought to the town but none of them were aware of its shape and form out of curiosity they said we must inspect and know it by touch of which we are capable so they sought it out and when they found it they groped about it the first person whose hand landed on the trunk said this being is like a thick snake for another one whose hand reached his ear it seems like a giant fan as for another person whose hand was upon its leg, uh, said, the elephant is a pillar like a tree trunk. The blind man who placed his hand upon its side said the elephant is a wall. Another who felt his tail described it as a rope. The last felt his tusk, stating that the elephant is that which is hard, smooth, and like a spear. There's actually a lot of like uh, different traditions of the same story. Uh, most of them are coming from India. Um, but the parable is used to uh to illustrate the range of truths and fallacies broadly the parable implies that one's subjective experience can be true but that such experience is inherently limited by its failure to account for other truths or totality of truth so i thought this was an interesting little detail to blindfold our character and then hand him elephants and and then he you never actually see what his guess is about what it is they cut away before he gets it he seems confused though because he's touching different el- parts of it and he's like I, I don't know what this is which is great because again his perspective is only the only one we really get in the movie right or at least the perspective of a drug user so um seeing him struggle to to fully examine something or fully know what something is because of his limited perspective uh certainly feels uh, thematic and appropriate uh for this movie wow that very keen of you to identify that that is that is absolutely fantastic um okay so i've got 
a few Easter eggs for you. Uh, first one, Robert Downey Jr. wrote down most of his lines on post-it notes and scattered them around the set so he could read off of them while filming a scene. The rotoscoping <laughs> team simply animated over the notes to remove them from the film during post-production. I think this is amazing. That's a, that's a great hack. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> a really good hack, it, especially it since he has he so many complicated it. words forever. Yes. <laughs> yes. That, but um, maybe this is why they hired him to be Iron Man, because he was going to be on a green screen all the time, and his reality <laughs> wouldn't be real. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, I think that was a, such a fun little thing. And it's, yeah. <laughs> this is, he was made to be Iron Man after this role, for sure. Um, and then in addition to that, according to writer and director Richard Linklater, filming was completed in 23 days. The animation took 18 months, which, uh, wow. again, um, we watched a video on the Apple chat live stream about rotoscoping. And now there are more like kind of procedural ways to do rotoscoping where you, you do need to animate, you know, here and there, but you can get a computer to kind of do those things for you. So it could probably really speed up the timeline. I imagine for something like this, if you made it to, yeah, I think the software is called Epsynth or something like that. And, um, it's, it will, I, the way that I, I've never used it, but the way that I understand it works is you pick a frame, you draw over that frame and then you pick another frame and draw over that. And it tries to fill in the gaps. And yeah, I've seen, they've shown examples of it not working that well, especially if you have a lot of movement. Um, but, uh, the, the, the guy LT Tom, um, what he does is he first puts a filter over himself to make him look like he's animated, and then uh, does the rest. And he, I think, he spends a lot more time editing than I think uh, like Joel Haver does. But he definitely does. Um, he, I think that that first step certainly aids in the uh, finished product. It makes the 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 animation a little smoother, a little easier. Um, but yeah, that's a. Um, you're right. I think that I think rotoscoping has come a long way. I think that it's a uh, interesting art form, and I hope we see more of it, um, especially when it's creatively used uh, to show to tell uh, interesting stories. Yes, I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, and what's interesting is that this is the highest grossing digitally rotoscoped animated feature film, grossing seven million six hundred fifty nine thousand nine hundred eighteen dollars. I guess exactly to that amount of dollars. <laughs> <That's> very specific. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, being also the most expensive rotoscope feature ever made, that figure is lower than the film's cost of eight million, uh, eight point seven million dollars, which uh, is not wow. as exact of a number. Um, I <laughs> am surprised that there's not more rotoscoped movies out there, and I'm surprised this movie didn't make more money, seeing as the cast list was freaking like amazing. So, um, yeah. I, I, all I can say is I hope to see more rotoscope stuff in the future. I hope that the process becomes cheaper and, and quicker. And, um, I would love to see this medium explored more thoroughly because, uh, you know, Scanner Darkly is a great example of, of it really, uh, supporting what the message of the film. And, um, it also just looks cool. <laughs> I loved looking at it. Even the stuff that didn't matter, like when they stopped the car by the interstate and there's like a shot of the car on the other side of the interstate and all the other cars zooming by uh, i was just like this is cool to look at you know sometimes movies yeah. should just be cool to look at and uh i i so i want to see more rotoscoping <laughs> in the future i'm gonna i'm gonna quote you with that that's hilarious <laughs> uh, sometimes movies should be just cool to look at you're right you're absolutely right i could not agree with you more i really 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 mean that um 
the okay the last thing i want to talk about and maybe this will fit better in our deeper section but i think it will i think it doesn't really matter um this is my show this is our show we can do whatever we yes. want um so there's a couple of videos on youtube uh they're 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 connected they're like they're made together one of them is from cgp gray one of them is from kurtz Kazat. um and the first one from cgp gray is called you are two and the one from Kurs Gazad is something like, what are you? Or like, you know, yeah, like something like that. And the idea is uh, one that I've come across a couple of times and something that Yuval Noah Harari talks about in his sequel to, to um, Sapiens Homo Deus about the future and about uh, how we are simply a collection of systems. Uh, we are not an identity in any way. So uh, CGP Gray's video, You Are Two, is about how uh your brain when it doesn't communicate with itself when when you have when you separate the two hemispheres act independently of each other even when they can communicate directly they can you know they can act simultaneously but when they are disconnected they can act as different entities inside your own body and it becomes a little difficult to tell who you are or what you are when you start realizing that splitting up your brain uh turns you into two different people um there's actually there's there's really really famous experiments that are that Yuval Harari talks about in detail and it's very satisfying listening to that book and hearing his conclusions because they were the same kind of conclusions I heard or I came to after learning about these in psychology in college um, one of the experiment that was done was on these people that had severe epilepsy and to cure it, uh, they would go into, they would open up the brain and they would cut the, uh, link between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. And this had the effect of, um, the two halves of the brain not communicating. Apparently this will work and you won't die. And also like, um, uh, cure their epilepsy. So, you know. Dang. Anyway, there was enough of these people <laughs> that they were able to do <laughs> some some uh, experiments on. And essentially what they found was that it was possible for the right side of your body to react to a stimulus while the left side of your body would not. And that's because the right side controls the left side of your body and the left side of your brain controls the right side of your body. Anyway, that's not really important. The point is that if you show something to your right side, of of your body it will react as if um you have uh as if it got that stimulus the left side of the body has no idea what you're doing if it can't see that stimulus right and but it it will come up with a reason for why you did something so if you if it's like um they're like here here's a picture of a uh i think that's i think this example was in one of the experiments they said uh there's a there's, this is a picture of a bell tower and i want you to draw it uh you know and so it only showed one side of your of the body the the person drew it and then handed it to the other side of the body and then they asked why did you draw this and instead of saying oh i have this thing in my head where i don't my my brains don't my my, my brains don't talk to each other it said well i heard a, a bell tower earlier and that's why i drew, drew this so wow <laughs> now the important thing to remember here is that you are coming up with reasons for why you're doing things. You don't actually know why you're doing things. And the other part to remember is that just because you feel as if you are an individual does not mean that you actually 
are. You're influenced constantly by the different processes in your body. You have so many nerve endings in your stomach that some they used to be referred to it as the second brain, which is why you might be angry when you get hungry or depressed um, if you have some sort of nausea or something like that, because the nerve endings in your stomach will communicate with your brain that something is wrong, and you will interpret that as some sort of emotion, not that you are experiencing some sort of, uh, you know, hunger or, or, or other bodily process. And the same thing is true for any other part of the body, right? Uh, you can interpret almost anything as and, and, and believe it is one thing. Uh, and there's, there's, you can come up with reasons after the fact. And in fact, when you remember it later, you remember it as if that happened that way because your brain doesn't work, does, can reconstruct your past in real time. It doesn't necessarily perfectly recall things. Um, so it's a, uh, it's really interesting that they talk about the splitting of hemispheres in this in this movie, uh, especially since it has such a, a profound effect on Bob Arthur. It's it makes me actually believe that he doesn't know who he is at the end. That he's lot that one half of his brain thinks he's Bob Arthur, and one half of the brain thinks that he's Fred, and he can't connect the two and doesn't and doesn't know how he even got in the situation. But he's willing to come up with reasons why. Uh, retroactively um, because that's what we all do it's what we do constantly how do you read stuff like this and then not just completely doubt your entire reality right we're 170 something like podcasts in it's like are we doing this because we want to or is this a result of like some sort of complicated stimuli that we're justifying to ourselves um, it, it gets a little bit uh I don't know, spooky. Right. Well, that's the thing, right? Is, yeah, I, I think that you can choose to despair or you can choose to <laughs> believe that this is always what you're, um, well, what you've always been doing, right? And, and the fact is that there are certain, there are certain reasons why you do things beyond the, um, like the immediate, ben- like, not the immediate benefit, but like the, beyond like your stated reason, right? Mm-hmm. And what I what I take away from this is that I try not to overcomplicate things. When when something has happened to me or I have some sort of, you know, epiphany or something like that, I try to simplify it as much as possible. And don't and don't go through the effort of being like, well, you know, uh, I once had this one experience and it was super profound to me and then I uh, talked to this one person and that like really triggered this. I try to make it as simple as possible for me and be like, oh, well, I, I recently saw this uh, this thing and it reminded me of this other thing or I, um, you know, I was hungry that day. That's why I acted that way. <laughs> like I try not to make it into like, a, I try not to put a lot of like um, weight on my own emotions and i tr- and i try not to put a lot of weight on my own thoughts which is difficult for me i i struggle with that but it's something that you have to keep in mind because you aren't those things right you you can you are a collection of a bunch of things you have to rec- recognize what's important and then you know uh, focus on that and you know it's one of these uh it's like pruning a bush or a bonsai tree right you can shape it or yourself into whatever shape you want you just have to get rid of the parts or ignore the parts that put go in the direction you don't like it's um no i think that's that's definitely um like a good way to look at it um one of the things that i've like had to learn uh you know in in my 20s i guess is that the way that i feel after a night of drinking is like not legitimate <laughs> you know like i'll wake up the next <laughs> my body is in like recovery mode from having been 
poisoned yesterday and i will have yes. like negative opinions of things of my my mood will be like generally worse and it's like i've just learned to basically disregard how i feel in those moments i'm like okay do the things that make sense but like don't overthink it's like wow i'm at brunch and like i'm not totally enjoying this like am i depressed or is like is everything terrible it's like no your body is is like completely off kilter and maybe these emotions aren't totally validated um and i think that's just a microcosm of of kind of what we're always experiencing um through all these different stimuli something i'm I'm thinking about all the time is like the like what am i doing to my body and what am i missing right i most of the time right i'm sort of just guessing about like what i should be eating or what I should be doing at any moment. And I often make gambles on like how much sleep I'm going to get or, or um, you know, how I'm going to spend my day thinking that I'm going to be fine with it later. And then it turning out that's, that's wrong. And that I, I regret it, you know? And I feel like maybe this is like an argument for the surveillance state, but I, <laughs> I sometimes wish I had a, some sort of, some sort of monitoring device that would tell me like what my different levels of, necessary nutrients were at any moment right like oh i feel so shitty today because i have no iron in my diet you know it's like oh i forgot to eat anything that had protein in it for the last two days and that's why (laughs) i feel so terrible you know it's like uh, if i had something like that that was like actually monitoring myself i feel like i could take care better care of myself and i would be less reactive to these you know fleeting moments and what you're describing of like uh, like not putting a lot of stock in in that I think that's honestly what it means to be an adult is like <laughs> recognizing that you have emotions and that these emotions are not um your entire reality right I think when you're younger it's really hard to control that and it's really hard to you you often act on those emotions and I think growing up is learning to control that and learning which ones to ignore and which ones to act on um yeah. and yeah. you know I think that's a uh, a powerful thing to to recognize about yourself and um the better you are at that the uh like more fulfilled you are in your own life if only vi- uh life was like a video game where you would get some sort of like indicator that you're like yeah iron deficient and you or like your oh character you, you would just start being like oh oh every like 30 seconds um, as you like take that's iron so funny damages. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like the really annoying, like you're on one heart, le- like a <laughs> music that plays. God, it's so funny. It's uh, it's. Oh uh, gosh, I don't want to like stretch this too much longer, but like, <laughs> what you're what you're describing is sort of become an obsession of for me. Uh, there's this uh, genre of book called lit RPG, as in like literature role playing game, and yeah. the premise of many of these books is that our your characters have access to their character screens so they know Ah. all of their abilities listed out and specifically like different attributes they have about themselves like how strong they are or how fast they are or how dexterous they are or anything like that and uh the result is that everyone starts min maxing life they all start doing things to up their own stats uh to become the most powerful person on on the planet or or whatever right um it's a fascinating genre i've read uh, i don't know how many, close to 20 different books that fit into this genre over the last couple of years and it's um it's something that 
um, has sort of broken my brain in a way because I fundamentally disagree with the art, like living your life as if it's an RPG. Um, I think that you should just do things just to do things and should try to like make yourself happy and make yourself feel like you're, you're, um, you know, you've created your own meaning. When you start gamifying life, you start to lose like any sort of semblance of like who you are and become sort of a drone toward, uh, some vague, uh, number going up, which is fun for a video game, but if in your own life it feels so hollow it feels like you uh you don't um you're not experiencing anything you're just simply doing things in order to get better at being alive but the but life is what happens uh while you're waiting for something to happen you know what i mean like it's while you are your life is a journey right not a destination you're not trying to get somewhere you're doing it you're doing it now this is what you this is the purpose of it you've already arrived so um I think that there's actually been some like uh em- like emphasis on the RPGness of life especially in like uh for some uh disparate political groups. I think people like incels and even like something like uh far right reactionaries like the proud boys, I think they um often fall into this trap of trying to be a um trying to live their life as if they are in a video game and not as if nothing is real but as if they can um they can you know do the right actions to get ahead right and uh that feels like that might be true but only because you've played a lot of video games only because that's how it works you get rewarded for doing the right thing in a video game and that's not how life works um and if you spend all your time wondering if you're ever going to level up you uh miss out on um, just living as you are. Yeah. I mean, I think I see a lot of that in kind of like hustle grind set culture where they're like, exactly. Like exactly. Morning routine for like making more money and being more productive. Um, which I also see actually at this point, I mostly see only ironically on social media accounts that make fun of that because I would never follow an account like that, but they have ones where it's like 3am wake up, like, 305 shit yourself like you know like grind set <laughs> culture you know it's like stuff it's it's like so ridiculous because it might as well be right because the the these a lot of times these kind of like hustle grind set like motivational daily planner or whatever is totally unrealistic as well and going back to what you were just saying about kind of like the 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 real like goal of life is like the friends you made along the way Whenever I talk to people about having a podcast, a lot of times people are like, do you hope to do that full time one day? Or like, do you guys like figured out a way you're going to monetize that? And I'm like, it's, I don't have necessarily like a goal where I'm going to get to. And it's like, okay, now I'm like, ha- like the goal for podcasting. Is now to I'm podcasting. I'm finally yes. <laughs> podcasting. All that other stuff was not podcasting. Now I'm podcasting. Exactly. No, it's like I literally, and it was, I'll be honest early on. It, I wasn't really sure what I was doing. And like, there was a part of me that was like, Oh, like eventually it's like, now I understand I've been alive long enough. It's like the fact that I'm doing this at all is the reward itself. Like I'm currently living it right now, even as I say this sentence. Um, and I think that that's an important, I feel like I feel sorry for people who don't recognize stuff like that. Um, because you don't have to wait until you've reached some sort of benchmark to be happy, uh, to that, that you've made it. You can already be doing that by just appreciating the fact that you're doing it. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, there's this, 
constant feeling that I have. Um, and I think I think you are familiar with this as well. But and maybe this is just a, a American thing. But constantly, I am thinking about how to monetize my hobbies. You know, I'm like, how can I make money off of this? Which is so stupid. I really, you shouldn't think that way. Um, because honestly, it ruin it can ruin something that you enjoy. It, like, it shouldn't. Like, maybe you should be thinking about how to get better at it. But the the goal of like, how do I make money off of this? Is such a distraction, and it. it the, the truth is that your whole life shouldn't revolve around how much money you make. Um, and maybe that's an unavoidable thing. Maybe you have to think that way uh, to be alive um, in this country. Um, but I, I try not to, I try not to go down that path. I try to just enjoy my things I like instead of constantly thinking about how I can possibly make money off of that. And it, I think it also helps that the podcast and any hobby you, you engage in has improvements outside of just doing the thing right sure it's nice seeing that we have 179 episodes but i feel like i'm so much better at talking so much better at writing so much better at communicating um so much more confident in my own in myself and um i've watched lots and lots of movies that i enjoy that's like um and that's that's been a, a really great reward that i feel like can boost me into the next thing which i will hope to monetize <laughs> <laughs> That's the spirit. Make sure you work up at wake up at three a.m. and shit yourself first. <laughs> that's um, the only okay. thing I'm missing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, moving forward, I just want to go over this one last quote from the movie because I think it's very important. Where did substance D come from? Why can't we stop it? The bigger this war gets, the more freedoms we lose. The more substance D is on our streets. Can't you figure this out? Look around you. Look how far we've come. Humanity wasn't meant to live like this. Our every waking moment tracked and traced and scanned. It's time to stop submitting to this tyranny. It's time to realize that we're being enslaved. Uh-oh, it's our tax dollars at work. Protect us from ourselves. Hey, guys, I used to be one of you. Stop selling out your own species. So this is what we were referencing earlier when we said literally Alex Jones is in the cast of this movie. Yeah. It's literally Alex Jones playing himself. A voice you probably never expected <laughs> to hear on this podcast. Um, yeah, it's uh, uh, the first time I watched it, I didn't catch it. And then the second time I was like, hold on. I know that voice. <laughs> I've heard that voice so many times. I think maybe because of the bullhorn, I wasn't, I, I, I didn't recognize it at first, but, uh, or maybe it just went right over my head. Uh, but um yeah it's it is amazing that he's in this movie i think in 2006 he wasn't quite the controversial figure that he is today um you know alex jones for a long time on his radio program was simply an entertainer right he was saying a lot of things that he he says today but everyone knew that it was like tongue-in-cheek right that he was simply talking as if he was a conspiracy theorist not necessarily endorsing conspiracy theories um but now he's uh kind of i mean really gone off the deep end um and he's one of the most despicable people in media um and i hope he loses all his money in this crazy lawsuit that the sandy hook parents have have lobbied against him um but it is amazing seeing him in this movie and uh, i i have to admit that it's awesome listening to him talk and uh he's the perfect cast for this part uh <laughs> because uh he's uh, he's right in this uh, about this one thing in the context of this movie <laughs> yeah no it's just wild i just I, it's just nothing more than to point at it and be like we also recognize that this was in this movie. <laughs> so kind of a weird thing. I mean, talk about a cast of notable individuals. Uh, even it's this true. Bit it role. is true. 
is from a guy who's like got A-list notoriety at the very least. Okay. That is going to bring us to the end of our conversation on a scanner darkly, as we do at the end of every episode of Apple Chat. We'll now deliver our ratings. Joey, what what rating do you want to give to this movie? I would uh, recommend you watch this movie with all your friends that have turned into big big bugs. (laughs) All right. um, I give this movie a crippling addiction to rotoscope. Let's see some more rotoscope in these movies, folks. Please. Okay, well, that's going to do it for our discussion on a scanner darkly. Joey, what's next on Apple Chat? Next, we are doing another Keanu Reeves film, John Wick 4, which is appropriate. Did you see that um, Lance Riddick just died? No. Um, yeah, Lance Riddick oh, at breaking age 60. Breaking news on the podcast. Um, uh, died like a couple days ago. Um, really sad. Uh, I mean, I've been watching The Wire and uh he's amazing in that show and when i saw that this is like the first this is like honestly the first celebrity death where i actually felt sad that he died uh that wasn't like a suicide um uh normally i really couldn't care that much but um i was like no lance riddick but i like you (laughs) i'm starting to really (laughs) like you Lance riddick yeah anyway uh very sad news but um john mcfour uh be very exciting to talk about and um if you like this and keep uh go ahead Sorry. And yeah, in keeping with our planning of the year, we've really put a calendar together to try to stay on top of new releases that we care about. First, we did Cocaine Bear, now John Wick 4. So uh, we should be hopefully one of the first in your podcast feed who's got their thoughts on John Wick 4 out there. So make sure you go see it opening weekend, uh, which will have already, uh, you know, probably happened by the time you hear this. But. <laughs> <laughs> You can uh, describe. You can describe to us. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Applechat.com is your new favorite website on the internet. There you can find the latest from us and all our social accounts, including Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all of which are at Applechat, and even our email address, Applechat at gmail.com. If you like this episode, then become cripplingly addicted to it. And when someone asks you how much Apple Chat you listen to, you can say, "Not that much." <laughs> Uh, Apple Chat is live on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Twitch. This week, we're going to be watching an old VOD of me streaming on Twitch to see if I can understand uh, more about what was happening during that individual live stream. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to do it for this episode for Apple Chat. I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 